Hi, and welcome to today's SME Business Podcast. Your host, Mark, will be joining you to interview a founder of an SME business each week, highlighting lessons learned and revealing insights. Listen and learn each week on how to get and stay ahead. Hi, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in for the next episode of the SME Business Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jared Hook. Jared is the CEO of Dito Design, the premier firm that helps the energy industry on the areas of digital transformation, user experience, UX, and renewable energy. Jared started his first design firm at the age of 20. After the dot-com bubble, he spent over a decade traveling in countries such as Vietnam, Sweden, and China. He's a lecturer at the University of Texas as well on the subject of teaching design thinking methods. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, yeah, uh, I, I prepped a few questions. Um, um, yeah, um, as a um, small business owner myself, um, I started this podcast to, to highlight uh, people like yourself and, and the organizations that they run. Um, so yeah, this is a way to, to highlight what you do and what you bring to the table. Uh, because sometimes, um, as we all know, it, it can be a bit hard to get some, uh, let's say, a promotion um, until you get big, and then people will say, "Hey, I I know the guy," and it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, you need supporters in the beginning, so yeah, it's it's nice to you know learn each other uh, more about each other in this episode. Um, so yeah, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and how you got into design? Yeah. Um, well, th- thanks for having me, and this is I, I'm really excited to to uh, to be here today. I, um, I I actually come from a pretty creative family. I mean, even going back to my great grandmother was a, um, a fairly well published uh, poet. Um, my uh, grandmother was a writer. Both of my parents were uh, painters, sculptors, and filmmakers. So it was kind of um, it was kind of a normal uh, part of our uh, of our family to to be uh, creating things, making things. I actually kind of rebelled uh, in high school and um, was getting really into science. And I actually entered the University of Texas as a physics and astronomy major. Um, and that was sort of my, uh, my anti-creative uh, phase, I guess you could say. But it, it, it actually was a good foundation because um, I went sort of from, from physics into uh, to studio art, it was the 90s, it was a very interesting time for education. You could kind of hang out and just go to school uh, as, long as, you, as long as you wanted in a lot of ways. And so when, when I, I finally landed on design, it was a really nice blend of that creative tradition with a, a little bit of the discipline and rigor of science. And that's actually been, um, that sort of duality has been a big part of uh, my career professionally. Background uh, explains a uh, fascinating background. Explains that, um, yeah, you know, like the where the design angle comes from. Because for me personally, you know, like um, I'm, I'm pretty much a, uh, yeah, hardcore technician, if you will. Um, yeah. But yeah, like of course, you know, that that comes in, you know, your your design frame, if you will, for, for your own career. Uh, because you see, hey, you know, like uh, this is uh, something really cool to do. Well, it, it's yeah, so. been handy professionally because I'm able to interface with very technical people. You know, we, we do a lot of work uh, in nuclear power. Uh, and so I'm sitting there with reactor engineers and understanding, you know, being able to speak to them around the challenges in chemistry, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, radioactive decay and understanding what their job is like. And then 
being able to connect that with, um, you know, sort of our, our user research group, which is understanding their workflows and understanding their their uh, psychology and their behaviors and and, and uh, organizational structures, and then being able to connect that with our our you know sort of um, pure breed designers that are, are very much you know the artist creator uh, people and being able to sort of translate from people that are are thinking in in, in pure science or pure tech and get that into some um, kind of embed it with the emotional necessities that um, are required for a successful um, design project and then uh, yeah, get, yeah. getting that made you know that's that's a lot of the, that's a lot of the day at the office uh, right now yeah and then then the nuclear reactor you can't get more critical let's be honest um, you know if if if, if user experience is, is, is wrong there uh, it potentially has uh, fatal consequences um, yeah we Daito really when we um, we a lot of the uh, the Daito team is certainly a lot of the management team has worked together for for many years actually across several companies and a lot of us got started out in the oil fields where you know you we were designing applications where you're opening and closing oil pipelines with uh, one hand on an iPhone right yes. and so we, we got pretty, um, frankly, a little bit scared of like, well, what if we get that wrong, right? I mean, people die, you know, environmental impacts, you know, economic, there's, 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 no, there's no upside to those kind of mistakes, right? And so we, that's where a lot of our methodology um, sort of uh, germinated is we wanted to bring the rigor of scientific method to creative execution because we realized that, you know, it wasn't just some social media app or some you know little, uh, photographic uh, something or another. This was this was real people doing real work in very dangerous places, and they were counting on us to get it right. And so that's where that's where we um, started uh, developing this methodology, which obviously came in very handy um, when we got into the nuclear space because that the, you know the stakes kind of increased you know uh, 10x um, with that kind of work. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. Again, fascinating. Um, it, it's funny you mentioned like the uh, industrial design. Um, it, it's it's an area that I don't necessarily, you know, expert in. Uh, but I know it is an issue for, from from in my area industry, as in like cybersecurity, where mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, the remote control is such now that what used to be safeguarded, if you will, by having to drive to a plant, is now remote controllable. Uh, yeah. And then, then finding out that the controls are not as great as they are. Um, I read something, for, you know, completely slightly off a tangent, uh, where um, I read that um, there's only a few uh, manufacturers that are able to uh, manufacture large-scale transformers. Mm -hmm. And because they're so expensive, they, they, they only have a few of them in stock. Mm -hmm. uh, so they said that if like two major power stations or such, um, the transformers would, would blow then potentially, um, yeah, the, the rest of the grid could, could cascade after that, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then the problem is, is then um, how do those transformers um, can it get manufactured ASAP basically. <laughs> uh, right, so yeah, that's quite interesting. Right? And uh, that's why the yeah. UX makes sense as well, because yeah, if, if, if it's too easy to make a mistake, if you will, um, yeah, then yeah, the consequences uh, can be drastic. The the fragility of our modern life, um, I, and this is something that I, I've done on a side project where uh, when I was in Sweden, I was actually attending the graduate program on sustainable urban management. And um, we spend a lot of time looking at 
what is, you know, what is a sustainable society? Cities are, are these incredibly efficient machines for living, uh, the most, you know, large and efficient machines sort of ever created, really. Um, but they're very fragile. I mean, if you think about living on the 20th floor of an apartment building with, you know, floor to ceiling uh, windows, if the power goes out, you, you know, obviously you're taking the stairs, which is, which is a problem. But even more so, you are, um, how, how do you make food, right? How do you get water up there? Um, you're going to yes, walk, yes, you yes. know, carry water 20 flights of stairs. And the idea of, you know, the power being off for three days, uh, three weeks, all of these things are very likely. I'm, I, I, I just actually started watching a show last night on, uh, uh, I think it was on PBS or something like that. It's called Cobra. It's uh, about the, you know, the British, uh, um, like, uh, intercouncil oh, yeah, security yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it was it was, there was a coronal mass ejection from the sun, which you know uh, basically was going to fry all of the the power grid, and you know very quickly they realized that they were completely unprepared for for anything like that, and those those kind of things actually happen you know fairly often at least on a on a historical timeline. So we're yeah yeah yeah, and and it's hidden from the public, and in a way it's good because you know it stops people from panicking. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely something to look at while we get more digital. Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering as well, how did you get into being a lecturer as well? Yeah, so um, so I, I attended the University of Texas design program. Uh, that's where I have uh, my, my undergraduate degree. And I, I, I've always sort of uh, wanted to stay um, in contact with that group. And the, the, the original faculty that was in my program sort of got augmented by um, a huge wave of new um, new faculty, um, largely from Frog Design. So Frog Design, uh, their first interactive office was in Austin, and I had some I had some contacts through that group. Um, and uh, the um, a woman named uh, Doreen Lorenzo, uh, she was the former president of Frog Design, sort of took on the um, the reconceptualization of that program. And uh, I, I thought she was a bit of a rock star. And now that I've known her for a few years, I, I find out that I even underestimated how cool she was. She's really uh, one, of, one of the most um, impactful uh, uh, people in design, even though she's not so technically kind of a card carrying designer. And uh, I, I just reached out to her and said, you know, I wanted to meet you, find out what you're doing. This program sounds really exciting. And she had just um, shortly, uh, like the day before or something, had decided that, you know, she really needed to bring a sort of energy and sustainability emphasis to the program. And who, who did she know? She didn't know. She couldn't think of anyone right off the top of her head that would be a good fit for that. And then I, I sort of walked in her office, like right when she was uh, looking for that. And um, I don't know if she signed me up. And I, I, I started teaching the same month that I started Dido Design. Um, and so it was, it was a very intense sort of starting of, of both of those things where I was learning how to be a professor and learning how to be a CEO kind of at the same time. Um, yeah, but, but, yeah, but it sounds like a, a, a intensive learning period, but um, it's, it's the best way to do it. You know, it's like so, sometimes, you know, you have Drink to stop the reading the books and then just get home with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've always been um, I've always had a tendency to say yes to things without entirely thinking them through, and it's it's given me a great amount of uh, flexibility and resiliency. And I mean, it's the same kind of ways that I ended up in Vietnam and in China and, and a lot of other places. Is that I'm sort of uh, up for it. So uh, let's just go and see what happens. And um, sometimes you find out you have limits. Uh, sometimes you find out that you have a lot less limits than you thought. And 
um, you know, a, a life um, without some risk is, is kind of, I don't know, it's too yeah, boring for Yeah, you me. know, it's, it's like, uh, I, I follow along with like the David Goggins school of thought, where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, most people are operating at 40% of the capacity and we can yeah. do more than we think. Um, um, I, to be fair, I haven't done anything that adventurous as you've done. Uh, but yeah, I've taken on projects. Yet. I have taken on projects that um, initially I was like, "No way, I can do that." Mm -hmm. And then I, I I I said yes, and I still did it. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's one of those things to just you know be like, okay, you know what, I, I'm betting on myself, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it completely makes sense. I I think that you know people's relationship to failure, um, and you know. We're, we're bookending this with, you know, the failure at a nuclear power plant is an unacceptable failure, right? Yes. And so innovation in that space has a much, um, much more specific constraints on it because there's, you know, you can lose an entire, you know, uh, region of a country if you, if you do that wrong. But I, I think that in so many areas, uh, in so many ways, um, people's relationship with failure is too tied into their ego and and that, you know, if the project fails, if the design fail, if the, you know, whatever it is that I'm getting up to fails, that that reflects back on them. I, I guess to some extent, I've never taken that. Um, and I don't know if that's just the subtle, you know, design training from my parents or, or, or what it was that, that allowed it. But I never really, um, I, I've failed so many times. I've actually given hour long lectures on just a sort of a litany of all of my failures in my career and all of that as hopefully as a point of inspiration for um for, for this youth group that we were uh that i was talking to but just that you know it you, the sun rises every day there's um there's a lot um you can live with a lot less than you do right now and so yes. you know if you end up at zero just pick yourself back up and get to it yeah, there's, just start there's again. no there's no real giving up you know uh it doesn't it doesn't work like that so um just go for it yeah, exactly. How I say it is like, like fill forward, mm -hmm. because you, you you might fail, but you're still moving forward. Well, if you you know stop trying, then then you fail by default. Um, so yeah, indeed. That's that's, that's indeed. how I see it. Yeah. So so what do you think makes working with the energy industry so special for you? I just love it. Um, I mean, it's a complicated subject. Is I mean, I am. Uh, very much a um, sort of devout environmentalist, uh, and, and you know I do see that the a lot of our the energy companies out there have a let's say mixed track record uh, optimistically, and so there, there's some there's some complexity there, but um, the kinds of problems they have are just fascinating. Um, you know how do you you know deal with you know just petabytes of data and try to get AI to 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 discover the things that you didn't know that you had right and how do you uh how do you take an organization that hasn't updated anything in 50 years and get them to do all of their work you know uh, mobily collaboratively uh, and and more effectively i mean the problems are are not small um and the solutions are you know i it, it's just it it draws out the best work of my career every project it just forces you to just kind of take a step back and go wow okay this is this is a gnarly problem this is something that really requires some unpacking and that's where you know our research arm is really um is so robust in that we really drill into the root cause of these problems 
And then we're able to design much more specific solutions. And I guess a lot of the reward in that is that we just get such great feedback. And you know, it's not the the CEOs or the the you know, VPs that are that are doing praise. I mean, we, we get that. But the the worker on the ground, the guy in the the old steel toed boots and the hard hat, who has been doing this job and it's been you know, uh, frankly, a pain in his ass the whole time, and he's finally kind of. He's got a to somebody made him a tool that makes his life easier. Y- yes. I don't know. To me, that's a, feels very virtuous. It feels like a very um, it's a very rewarding way to to create solutions. Yes, yes. I think that you know I qualified it as feedback that matters um, because yeah. yeah, it's it's one thing that that you know the 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 CEO of a client says you know this is great this is great delivery, but then if it's such that that um, the person on the work floor, it actually doesn't improve their workflow, if you will. Um, yeah, then, you know, that kind of, that becomes meaningless. Well, if it's the other way around where the workflow thinks yeah. it's great and says, thank you, that kind of thing. Um, I think in my experience as well, those projects have been the more valuable. Um, well, they tend to be yeah, more effective, right? Is. So top down, I, I think that we're seeing a major shift mobility being one of the key drivers of this, but just generally um, sort of location-based IoT and sensor data and all of these kind of things that everyone is trying to push things down into the edge um, because that's where the action actually is. And so I think that we're going to see a bit of a reduction in the layers of management and, and, and things like that because these top-down solutions um, you know, they, they solve a problem for less and less people. Now, of course, there's a lot of effectiveness at, at getting that data, you know, pushed up. But really what you need is the people that are right there in the, in the middle of, of whatever the issue is to have everything they need to solve that. And, you know, the, just on the, the subject of, of um, you know, rewards in, in doing this work, um, you know, it's, we, we save jobs. Um, sometimes we, uh, you know, uh, we, we do eliminate um, some positions, but a lot of times, in these organizations, they just move to other places or they're able to get back to what they were you know, trained to be doing and they've been doing a lot of busy work and whatnot. Um, but you know, this, this saves jobs, this saves plant closures, this saves um, these companies money so that they're able to actually have money to invest in renewables and, and in the sort of future of energy. And so- Yeah, and, it, and it's great you bring it up because a lot of people go like with digital transformation, that it's it's like it's destroying, it's destroying jobs, but actually um, statistics prove that it's actually generating more jobs than it actually destroys. I think um, solar installer is the, the number one growing um, job in America. Um, it's yes. at least in the top five or something like that. Um, yeah. it's, it, solar, I think, employs more people than nuclear, coal, and uh, you know, hydro, and a few other ones. I mean, it's it is a huge industry, and um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of patchwork in terms of the solutions. There's very very few solutions out there that really are solving the business, uh, the user problems, and and doing the sort of intelligent way of, of applying that technology so that, that everyone is sort of getting the results that they're expecting out of it. Yeah, uh, complete, uh, makes complete sense. So uh, as an enterprise as well, how should they successfully engage with an innovation agency if they choose so? Well, 
I, I can speak only from, from my experience, uh, which uh, 25 years in agencies, which is, I guess, a bit. Um, I think that the best relationships that I have seen are usually the ones that are grow to an extremely high amount of trust. Um, there really shouldn't be any misalignment of goals between your internal team and your agency because you're just there's already miscommunications and and miss um, you know there's two separate groups so there's different cultures and things like that so the closer you can align and incentivize the agency to align with your business goals the more effective that that's going to be and at Daito we take sincerity and trust extremely high uh, um, and you know to that point, you know, we, we will take um, sometimes hits on margins or, or take other sort of take one for the team kind of moments um, to make sure that our clients understand that we are 100% dedicated to their success. We absolutely will do what is right for them and we'll give them the honest feedback that they need. Uh, and sometimes it's not feedback that they want to hear. Uh, sometimes we tell them that they've made you know the wrong decision. Sometimes that they've made the wrong investment, uh, and that you know this is what we see as the path forward. And it's it's um, that approach we have in many ways sort of grown um, much less like a weed, which I think a lot of the startup world is like you know just grow, grow, grow as fast as you can. And a lot of times those those startups also you know deflate just as quickly, yes, right? Yes, it's yes, because yes, there's, there's nothing there, right? It's all just, you know, balloon with nothing inside. Yeah. We try to grow more like an oak. Uh, it's yeah. been slower. Um, and we were talking sort of before the podcast a little bit about the, you know, uh, six months to hit, you know, revenue or, or something like that. We'll be four years in December. And I would say that just in the last five, six months, have we arrived at what I would call a a like solid 1.0 of where, where the agency, um, yes. what I intended the agency to be. We have yep. consistency with our clients. We have trust with our clients. And I think that that's really, um, it, it's, it's a, it, you have to try to find a way to afford to have patience to let these things happen because working in enterprise, it, it moves slower sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, sales cycles um, can be All of that. You know, one to two years. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, yes, indeed. see that. Um, so as well, uh, how do you feel user experience design or UX design derives adoption of tech innovation efforts? Well, I think UX is, is uh, obviously a critical part of that. I mean, uh, if people don't want to use your, your product, um, you're going to find resistors. Um, uh, a few years ago, we were doing a project uh, for drilling foremen on uh, offshore drilling rigs. And uh, these are not the most welcoming people in terms of new technology or outsiders or a bunch of designers running around their rigs. Um, and so the, the comment from them was, if the UX on this application isn't good, if, it, if it's hard to use, these iPads better float um, because we're going to fling them off the side of the, the drilling platform and we'll just go back to doing it on paper. So there's a pretty high bar there um, for, for driving adoption. So UX is a key part of it but it's not all of it. So you have to understand that, that um, there is the organizational structure of these groups. And inside this organizational structure, there's the social structure. So you may have a person who is not a manager, who's not a, a ranking person of that organization, 
but they're the one that everybody goes and asks when they have a question. It's old Tony or whatever that, that person is. They're the person that sort of decides what the, uh, the, the sort of micro societies inside these groups, uh, what their opinions are. And you have to identify these people that are, are potential detractors and message and engage with them in the design process to make sure that those people are able to um, overcome and understand that this is done with the right intentions and will have the right results for them. And so the, the, those, the understanding those micro societies inside the, uh, inside the organizational structure is one of those key ways. Change management is a, is, you know, is a whole subject, but I think a lot of times it's something that's kind of glossed over um, sort of, if you build it, they will come. If you have this great new app, everybody will use it. But um, the data doesn't support that. It's very, um, it's very rare in enterprise, honestly, that a bottom-up, which is from the user to the managers to the executive level applications are really designed that way. Um, and designed with these, um, these, these little societies uh, in mind as a way of, of driving consensus around whether or not this the product is a success. And a lot of times those things are determined before the product even launches. Oh, they're coming up with a new application. We've seen this a hundred times. I'm not gonna use it. And all of a sudden, you know, that happens in the break room. And then all of a sudden this entire group is resistant to change yes. that was actually done very much for them. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've seen as well where, you know, you have a list of like, these are the stakeholders. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you actually find out, uh, well, actually there's two other people that, that have no um, management, uh, let's say, ca um, line capability, um, responsibility. Um, but if you don't convince them, then that whole project will just not work. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's, it's good to uh, find out who the key people are you have to convince and, and then get on board and get the feedback. Because like you said, um, Depending on the audience, it can, can be as sphere as like, okay, we'll take the iPad and throw it into the ocean. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's not what you want to have. Um, so I was wondering as well, how do you drive adoption of new technology? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that is a lot of it. I mean, the, the, um, a lot of technologists, you know, and that's the, the engineers, that's the um, IT people, uh, even some designers get a little bit uh, dazzled by the sparkly object. Oh, we need drones, or we need AR, or we need AI, or you know, pick pick an acronym and uh, and throw it in there. But they're they're not contextualizing these efforts, um, and the the context arrives, you know, uh, when when the pro you know when the um, product is delivered into into the workforce. But the the alignment towards the business goals. So how does this project connect to what the business is trying to do? How does this connect down to an understanding what the actual uh, workers are trying to execute? And then again, you know, the, the change management and, and social aspect of how is this going to affect the way they're working now? Uh, and, and actually test and iterate on that with an extremely human-centered uh, approach to that because they, you know, a lot of times I think companies just struggle so much with the technical implementation that they're like, great, we're done. You know, it works. You know, lights are on and all that stuff. Um, we worked with a client recently that had, they deployed a, a you know, multi-million dollar, um, you know, large enterprise software package. It was a huge success. 
for the executives and for the managers. They could all get the data that they wanted. And it, um, it took a simple task from the, their, their end users from five minutes a day to 45 minutes a day. And there was nearly a rebellion on their hands uh, as a result of this. And you know, to, to, um, to that uh, company's credit, they did a great job of saying, okay, we, we hear you. And they brought us in to find out what, what are the, number, the key issues and how do we resolve those and get those, get, get those fixed. But you know, you're, you're digging out of a hole at that point. And it's always so much better to go in and, and take the time to understand your users' concerns and challenges and what they're actually doing because these organizations, they have you know, 5,000, 10,000, 100,000 employees. Um, a manager in another department, sometimes in another country, doesn't understand the impact that this will have. And whether it's just frustration or whether it's uh, putting them potentially at risk because they can't, you know, they're trying to input data on an iPad and they're pinching and zooming on a ladder and it's just, it's just not a safe way to work. All of these little things, um, it, it's harder. And I think that the, uh, the, the adoption challenge is typically that you're using the same tools you used 10 years ago. You're using you know, developers, you're using IT managers, you're running Scrum, and like that's great. Um, but that isn't enough anymore. You need people that actually do humans well in, as a yes. part of this mix, social psychologists, you know, UX experts, designers, et cetera, that are able to, to craft those more um, subtle and, and more contextualized solutions. Yes. Yeah. And it could be like literally as simple as colors, uh, like placing the buttons in the right way, uh, in the right spot. Um, yeah. We, we did a project uh, not that long ago that was, uh, it was working with um, uh, people out in the field in one country and people, uh, you know, sort of the head office in another country. And uh, what we noticed is that they actually had a different vernacular. Um, one group would call this a thingamajig, the other one would call it a doohickey or something like that. And so there was a lot of confusion about what they were asking them to do because they didn't use that same terminology to describe the same thing. Yes. And so we actually had the end user using one set of language and they had all and had the head office using another set of language so that they were it was essentially a Rosetta Stone for, for inside their uh -huh. own organization. Uh -huh. uh, and it's a simple thing, right? I mean, this is a text string. It's not it doesn't require a lot of technology to do something like that. Um, and it, the the impacts and results and the re, you know reduction of errors or potential incidences can be extremely high, especially with if you're dealing with you know explosive or, or radioactive materials. Yes, yes, you know, that completely makes sense. I've seen an example as well with a ERP system where the shipping department got a new form, and then um, like you said, uh, instead of it being a um, a two-page process before it turns into an eight-page process. Um, mm -hmm. So they actually had a problem with it because it only it only meant that they had to take more time, but it also increased the potential points of error because they mm -hmm. had to manually confirm fields that were always default values anyway. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then, of course, you know, it was pushed from one end, but then the other end, they still had the productivity target. So you can imagine that conversation went over yes. well. Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, between a rock so, and a hard place. That's that's, yes, that's exactly. where most, and, and most people and I end can't up. Blame it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes you know, um, uh, back in the day, um, in the weekend, sometimes I would help out in the warehouse, um, just to 
get a first point point view if you're like okay um, first person view like okay how is this helping and where is it not helping um, and it could be like literally as simple like a, um, like a, a terminal where it's like you know we had these terminals for years but yeah the batteries are starting um, um, to to uh, retain their, their charge less which means that actually I now have to change my terminal twice a day and then yeah do that times 100 uh, order pickers uh, you can imagine the damage um, well, we, yeah, we did a project on on. In, in warehouse it, it just sort of reminded me of uh it was you know it was um it was for forklift operators in, in a large large industrial warehouses and um you know the going back to the what should you do to drive adoption get out in the field <laughs> go actually look at your users even even an hour with the users in their natural environment will teach you so much about how this uh, technology exists um, the, anyway, the forklift operators, they had a very kludgy like keyboard and mouse uh, system for, for processing uh, orders and all of this stuff. And so our, our researcher was out in the field and he saw, you know, they would load up a truck, they would go park their forklift, walk back into the office, get a digital camera, take a picture, go back into the office, print out the picture, put it into a, you know, the uh, bill of lading and, and all of the, the uh, shipping documents, uh, and then run that, uh, you know, run that to the thing and then lock up the truck. Meanwhile, we were going to be designing an iPad application that was going to be mounted on the forklift, aiming at the back of the truck. <laughs> and so yes. all we needed to do was add a button, take a picture, add it yes. to the documents, uh, and we could have saved 15 minutes per truck per warehouse. And I think there were something like 60 operators at this warehouse times like eight warehouses. You know, that's that's just that, that, that's massive, huge yeah. savings across yes, the organization yes. with just the, the being on site and going, now, why are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is there is there a way that we can help you not have to do that? And, and those are the things that would never show up as a requirement. Um, at, at, you know, certainly not at the, you know, from the head office point of view. Yeah, because those people in, in the store, in the warehouse, uh, might not get the ear of, of the people in charge. Um, yeah, the other example I had myself was, um, it's, it's similar in a warehouse where um, they had to then um, feed information uh, into the hand terminal about which shipping method to use. Uh, so it would be a drop-down menu, which of course you can imagine that that's not really something you want to do on the tiny screen. Mm -hmm. uh, so the simple thing was, like, hey, you know what, we'll generate QR codes. Um, because there's only three shipping methods really and then literally you put like one two three on your truck and you literally scan and then it inputs the value so guess what you know that that saves um i don't know like a few seconds per per item picked and then if you do that per i think it was fifteen thousand items a day you can imagine yeah there you all. go <laughs> <laughs> and they're like oh wow i just scan it it's like yeah well that, that's how it should be um and uh, so yeah, I, I would also make sense like to walk around to be like, hey, you know, is this actually helping you or is this stopping you um, from doing business? I, I think that a lot of the design thinking or, or user-centered design or UX methodologies, uh, a lot of their basic, um, the basic deliverables or basic uh, methods and process is really just doing the minimum due diligence in documenting what is the actual situation today. You know, they, they say empathy and all this. We, 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 we do appreciate empathy and, and trying to understand the user's experience, but we really try to objectively measure what, what's going on right now, right? Let's establish a clear baseline. And then from that, we can understand what of those points we can optimize. 
And that is essentially giving you a, a breakdown of requirements that you can you know, put costings to and you can start to group different uh, requirement sets to clear ROIs. That's a really great way to get your project funded in an organization is if you can say, if we build this, this, and this, we will save this $10 million a year uh, and we've, you know, we've tested and prototyped it and we can, we can confirm that we can achieve 80% of the, those total savings you know, with this you know, uh, amount of certainty. When you, when you put that in front of uh, procurement departments or uh, you know, through upper management to get your projects funded, it, it takes it away from, I want a cool new shiny object with a nice looking design. Like nobody really wants to buy you toys in, in, yes. in, you know, in business. But, oh, you're going to save us a lot of money and we're all going to get bonuses? Okay, yeah. go on. Let, let's, let's hear more about your plan, right? Yes. Um, so that, that's what we try to do is in terms of our, like packaging that stuff up. And I think that that's where UX, design thinking, all of these things, uh, their, their basic strength, you know, and a lot of it lives in Post-it notes and whatnot right now. But a lot of it is just write it, like really know the area that, know the context that this is going to exist in. And, and in doing those exercises, you will almost certainly make a better project, uh, a better product, um, even if you have just the most minimal, you know, uh, creative or, or, or design capabilities, but just that understanding their space and trying to solve it. And then, you know, go back and see how it works and try to, try to be aware of your own biases as you do that, um, so that you're not saying, you know, you like this, right? I mean, that's not the right way to, to test to test no, a prototype, no, exactly, exactly. right? So yeah. get, get some objectivity in there about how, how well did you do, and and don't be afraid to, you know, as we were saying earlier, don't be afraid to fail at your first one or two rounds of, of where you're going with something. If you're exactly. out in the field and you're you're talking to people, it will be better. It it will improve. Yeah, and then and talking about improving, um, uh, how do you feel about uh, how uh, you can design solutions that incorporate AI for a benefit, uh, as in uh, how it can actually improve? Uh, because well, AI I, is... of my own experience, yeah. what I've seen was that uh, a lot of it can be, um, let's say, almost like a marketing flavor. Um, but actually then, you know, look under the hood, um, sometimes it's not AI. Or it is AI, but actually it is not actually benefiting, um, you know, the end user in the end. Yeah, I, I mean, AI is still very much in its infancy. There, there are, you know, neural networks for ways of processing data, and you know, machine learning uh, algorithms are are definitely. We've seen some, um, you know, definite real world applications of how this is, you know, cutting processes from six months to you know six hours. Um, those kind of things. Um, I think that one of the challenges that we're seeing consistently come up with a lot of these AI projects is, again, kind of going back to that trust. So, you know, the computer tells us, here's, you know, here's oil, or, right? Or here's, you know, here's something that we want. Do we trust it? Is that, is that you know, like, do we, do we go spend a million dollars drilling based on what that says? How, how, what is the level of confidence that we have in that? How did it get to that decision, right? And so I think a lot of where um, AI, especially because it's coming from you know data science people, very you know or you know computer science people, all of the people that are are not really again uh, 
as trained in uh, focusing on user needs, how does the how do they make their uh, amazing algorithms and amazing code transparent enough to somebody who's a specialist in their field but isn't able to read the code and really understand how how that output came about? You have to create a human, uh, not just the result, but you have to sort of show your work. You have to show the proof behind why this out outcome is better than any of the other outcomes um, that we saw. And so I think that that is one of the, the, the huge um, uh, uh, gaps in, in that space is that the, uh, yeah, the, the connecting the, the logic to the human, because ultimately a human's going to have to still make a decision on that until we really just plug AI into everything and it's running the show. We still need to understand how it got there and be able to course correct or uh, you know improve the model in, in some manner through a very human interface yeah yeah it makes complete sense and then uh you know this is something uh yeah, always a hot topic if you will uh with with large corporations uh where do you, uh, do you feel they're going wrong with ux design and how could they do better i mean i, I think that uh there's a lot of challenges around bringing UX inside large organizations. Um, it, we've over the last 15 years, uh, I want to say there's some, you know, dozens of design firms, great design firms, uh, you know, cutting edge, highly performant, extremely vibrant culture uh, design firms that have gotten absorbed by large organizations and had the other life force crushed out of them uh, almost instantly. Uh, it's it's a pretty uh, typically whenever there's um, a new design firm that got acquired, um, I can usually set my watch for about 12 to 18 months between you know uh, there's usually some a little bit of golden handcuffs on all of the the executives and whatnot, but all of a sudden there's going to be new design firms popping up or a bunch of new designers on the market as they as they flee um, their sort of corporate overlords. So, in there it's it is a very hard thing to uh for i think a lot of corporations to understand how very subtle changes for them have huge impacts on the performance of a design culture um, and so just just don't don't buy any more design firms for a while because you, you're you're just really bad at, at at getting your value out of them a lot of times you end up with you know a fancy office uh with you know a few a few stragglers in there but it really does um, it does reduce the satisfaction of all of the of all the creatives working once they get acquired by large corporations. Yeah, so, yeah, a, a great yeah. point, and I think you're showing the power there of, of small and medium-sized business there, um, because yeah, you know, large organizations can can kill that that, that innovation culture that, that that you see more common with with smaller firms. Um, of course, you know there are exceptions to the rule, uh, but that, yeah, like you said, that often happens in tech space as well. You yeah. get small startups that get bought, and then um, yeah, um, basically and everything gets worse after that. Well right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah so uh, I was thinking as well. So, what do you feel governments around the world could do better to help small businesses grow? Ah, uh, man. Um something you know it, it's it's interesting so uh we're we're opening up our dutch office next year and uh it's been a, it's been an interesting study for me as as a business owner to to look at the compare and contrast between 
setting up a business in the U.S., which obviously has you know lower taxes and and uh, maybe somewhat less uh, re regulations, with the Netherlands, where it's actually an extremely pro-business uh, country. I mean, the, the regulations and all of that are actually very um, are, are very comparable, uh, and I think it put it, it pierces a little bit of the veil of the the American exceptionalism around you know this is the pro-business environment, et cetera. This is a, a, you know, the U.S. is a good place to, to, uh, to run a business in some ways. But things like, um, you know, I had to start buying my own uh, health insurance, um, you know, mortgages and all of those things don't stop when you, when you create a company. And so I took a huge risk. Uh, I had two small kids in setting up, um, you know, uh, setting up a business. And, and frankly, I, I had uh, a great network and great friends and great luck that allowed us to, to get through sort of the, the initial uh, infancy period of our, our company and get into sort of a little bit more of the maturity that we're in now. And I think that that's, that is a, uh, there's a lot of small businesses that fail because, you know, they've got families and they've got, they've got to be able to eat. So, Getting people through that first, say, 24 months, where the um, you know you're you're still trying to figure out the right people to bring into your organization. You're still trying to figure out how to um, how how to sell your product. You thought you knew, but maybe it's adjusting and all of this. Um, getting your your operations in place, making sure you bill and all all of those things that seem real easy on the outside, but it's, uh, there's a lot of painful learnings and a lot of different ways that you can sort of do that wrong. Uh, I think that that would be an area where um, I think governments could help a lot, where it isn't, you're not kind of literally putting your family in jeopardy to go start something, um, would be a really great period. I think that that could taper off. Um, I, I can only speak from sort of the, the, the Dido experience right now, but after after four years, we feel like we kind of, you know, we have a we have a good lawyer, we have good insurance, we have you know a good banker, we have you know a, a stable management team, we've got a great client base. Like all of a sudden, it's like okay, we're 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 good, and now we can sort of be you know kind of left to fend for our own to some extent. But the first couple of years, I mean, it was me, two small children, while teaching at the university, trying to trying to build this and and you know work with these enormous companies that you know some of them have uh, an 11 month procurement process oh you want to become a vendor well you know uh it's don't it's it's not happening this year right and so they want you know that client wants to work with you how do you how do you survive that long so it isn't necessarily um access to loans i don't think it's necessarily about money but there's a lot of other infrastructure that um, can make or break your um, your your small company, and I, I would say that to any policymakers that that are, are listening to this, that would be a great area to sort of um, add a um, a little bit of a safety net, um, so that that people with good ideas can actually afford to take that risk. I think they should be held accountable financially for for how they run their company and how they go. I mean, that's 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 business, but. Um, there's some of those other things that I think are the, that are um, can be huge distractions and and, and really um, uh, put up a lot of resistance to small companies uh, succeeding. Yeah, yeah, and I have that same thing, you know, like uh, you know, family as well. Um, um, yeah, but, you know, you take a risk, um, you know, you, and sometimes you left empty-handed, that kind of thing. Um, a small business, you know, a lot of them are struggling. 
So I was thinking of one of the things I, I thought about ourselves now, like governments allow, basically creating uh, like a digital uh, procurement layer for, for organizations to eat more easily procure from smaller companies. Yeah. Because uh, what, what oh, my perception is, is, you know, like people end up with, with usual suspects. And then mm -hmm. uh, it's it's one of those things where they they might want to de deal with 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 a, a smaller supplier, uh, but then if they're not in their network, they they, they might not know about it. Um, so I'm not saying now we should bring yellow pages back. Uh, that that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, they did that. There must be other means to you know help um, the 99%. I don't know if it's 99 in the US. Um, but let's be honest. Uh, small business is is a is a large part of 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 uh, yeah of the company. Yeah, I, think, I think that would be great. I mean, the only reason that we were able to start working with these large companies was because I had been working either with them directly or with similar companies previously, and so we had you know me and my team I should say had uh, you know a reputation with these uh, companies that uh, you know they knew they wanted to work with us, and so they were going to help cut through the paperwork to get us in there, uh, at least on our first couple of projects. You know, now, once you get one or two of those, then all of a sudden you legitimize it for the other large companies that want to work with you. And, you know, those ha those companies have requirements like, oh, you need to have $10 million in cybersecurity insurance to set foot on our property. Well, <laughs> you know, that's not something that most small businesses usually you know, budget for, right? And it's it's not uh, it's not um, it's not it's not particularly cheap. But no, those are no, no, that's no. the that's the you know those are the table stakes, right? Those are the things yeah. that um, that that are required for you to to be doing the work that you're doing. So any of those barriers that are you know are normal for large companies, but are are real challenging. Um, I think I think that would be great. I mean, the procurement process. Is usually the number one uh, challenge, and uh, that's something that we've gotten. Um, we, we have several people in our organization that are, are speak fluent procurement, and that has been hugely helpful in you know in getting uh, getting paid. Um, you know, lines yes. of credit I think are, are also uh, very useful. Um, they can be abused very easily or or, or mis uh, misappropriated and things like that. But you know, when you have clients that have between 45, 60, 180 day uh, payment terms, you know, uh, there's not a lot of uh, small companies that, that can wait that long. Yes. And so that's, that kind of goes back to trying to, to find a way to have the patient, uh, to afford to have the patience to succeed because it really does take a lot of patience in business. You can, you can push, you can push, you can push, but that's not really how they, that's not really how they work. Um, no, and so no, no. you have to kind of, be be alive once they're ready, right? That's that's yes, the yes, trick. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. No, no, I completely agree. Um, so, uh, if a, a budding entrepreneur would ask you for one piece of advice, what would it be? You have to be trustworthy. Uh, you have to absolutely be both internally with your people uh, and externally with your clients. If you are not an honorable person, if you're not, if you're, if you, you know, there, there's a certain amount of business that you've got to be crafty, right? I mean, you, you need to be selfish enough to be able to sort of in, in, uh, survive in the intensity of the business world. But at the end of the day, it comes to, business comes down to doing business with other people. 
And if you're not likable, if you're not trustworthy, if you seem sneaky, um, you may not know, it may not affect you today, but it will affect you. And it definitely will affect your long-term, um, your long-term growth. Um, and I, it's not to say so far as reputation, uh, it isn't about spreading how cool you are or how, you know, whatever it's, it's not about a wide net. It's every interaction you have with a customer, you need to be the best point in their day. You need to be someone that is solving their problems always. And, you know, we're, Daito has some of the roots, you know, uh, I, I, you know, in um, uh, many, many of us in uh, Daito are, are, are uh, some version of martial artists. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very novice version of one, but I, I study Aikido, which is, is, is a, a sword-based martial arts, among other things. And this idea of, uh, of this sort of samurai and, and, and to serve and this is a really important idea. They, yes. they have other people they can work with. They're, they're taking a risk by working with you and you need to make sure that that is the best decision they ever make because when you do, they will come back for more or at least uh, that has been our experience. Uh, and so we, we try to live by that. We try to live by the idea of, of service and humility and, uh, and integrity in everything we do. And I think that that is something that uh, I don't find as much as I wish out in the world. Um, and it, it is something that I think our, our clients appreciate with us because yeah, when no, we tell yeah, them yeah. to do something, they can believe it. Um, yes, yes, you know? very important. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, makes sense. And then, you know, uh, more personal, if, if you had a magic wand, what would you want to happen? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm going to go, I, you know, there, there's a lot of things I can say, and I, I, will, uh, I, I, will, I will not mention the state of the U.S. Uh, right now because it is, it is something that's very hard to, uh, hard to ignore. I honestly believe that the world is as going through the chaos and, and, and madness that it is right now is actually on a great path. And I, I don't think that I would want to change anything right now because it's, I think that there's, there's some wisdom that is coming out of what we're going through. It is, it is very painful wisdom. Uh, we're planning to send our kids to school after doing, you know, home learning. And this is, this is a scary thing, right? Is this inviting, you know, disease and, and destruction into our lives? But I think that all of this, all of this upheaval um, that we're going through has, you know, real suffering on a lot of people. And we've been extremely lucky. But for the world to, to wake up to things like climate uh, change, which we've been very, very, very uh, passive about or even actively uh, against in some, in some groups. Yes. Um, I, I think that we have to kind of wake up. And so... I would hope my, my magic wand would be that we would gain this wisdom faster than we are yes, um, yes. because it, it, it has to come. Um, and I don't know if it um, I don't know if it's coming fast enough for all of us. But uh, yeah, uh, let's 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 vote for for um, the world realizing that we're one we're one group of people and that this is the only rock we have. You know, I, I just drove through Wyoming uh, on the way to Yellowstone uh, a few weeks ago for vacation. And I can tell you, it, it looks a lot like Mars with a couple of shrubs. So yes. the idea of betting that we're going to go live on Mars and that's going to solve all of our problems, 
not the case. We no, we, we no. need to get get what we have going and, and everyone just sort of wake up a little bit would be my would be yeah my and request. then uh, you know renewable energy is, is a big thing there because um it's just yeah um, the thing i love about that mark is you yeah. know li working in oil and gas and nuclear and texas is a wind place it's a oil and gas place it's a yes. becoming a solar place we've got tesla's new gigafactory going in in austin yeah. right down the street the um renewables are here the economics have changed to the point that um, for probably 60-70% of our grid are going to be renewables just due to market forces. And I think that that is a really important threshold and, and, and it's some good news for everyone who cares about that, is that while oil and gas is um, you know, still a very dominant part of our lives, the, the writing is on the wall, it is, it is changing. And, and that, is, that is encouraging. So I think that we're actually on a, a great path this is an incredibly uncomfortable year, and I, I do worry that 2021 isn't going to be much of an improvement. But I, I think that we're going through um, an extremely intense global learning process. Let's let's see if we if we pull the right lessons out of it. Hopefully so. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, those were my questions uh, for you today. Um, uh, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I hope you had some fun as well. Um, Thank you for your time today. Um, um, yeah, if, if, um, I was going to say um, as a shout out, um, can you tell the listeners where they can find you, um, mm -hmm. you and, and Daito? Um, yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I, I had an, uh, this was a, a wonderful conversation and I, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, I think that you're, you're doing a great thing with this podcast and um, yeah, uh, very, very honored to be a part of it. Um, yeah, just to sign off, uh, uh, Jared Hugh, CEO at, at Dido Design, um, so didodesign.com. We're, we're largely based in, uh, in Texas. We've got offices in Austin and Houston, and we're uh, expanding into Europe as soon as the borders open, and we're able to actually do that. So uh, you'll be finding us in the Netherlands um, before too long. Okay, thank you. And uh, thank you for your time, and uh, have a great day. And uh, for, for all the other listeners, I'll uh, talk to you next episode. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I look forward to having you tune in again next episode. See you next time.